Revelation 2, starting at verse 18, is the message to the church at Thyatira. It says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last are to be more uh, the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not." Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he that searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not the depths of not known the depths of satan as they speak i will put upon you none other burden but that which you already have have already hold fast till i come and he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end to him will i give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Last week, the, the Bible conference was a, a blessing to me. A pastor needs to be preached to sometimes. And as I was talking with the visiting speakers about what each of us were preaching through at our churches on Sundays, I told Lewis and Doug, I think, by the time I get through Revelation 2 and 3, the people in church who asked me to preach through Revelation will probably have changed their minds. What we face in the text today is yet another challenge to maintain the purity of the Lord's church in both doctrine and practice. The the road here is hard. The challenges are daunting, but the demands of the Lord are clear. In fact, as we read these messages to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, they'll continue to be more challenging to us as we go. We'll, we'll, We'll note there's like this downward spiral in the character of each church as it gets, we could say, progressively worse. The, the first one, the church at Ephesus, was a church that was doctrinally correct, morally upright, hardworking, but they no longer held the love that they once had. The church at Smyrna was a church that was struggling under the increasing levels of persecution as they were being obedient to Christ. They received no admonition from the Lord in regard to bad behavior. Pergamos was a church that had compromised with worldliness by allowing wicked teaching and wicked behavior to continue unchecked. And now 
This church at Thyatira is a church that is very similar to the church at Pergamos. The difference is where Pergamos had begun to stumble during this struggle against persecution, there's no such persecution mentioned with the church at Thyatira. It had become tolerant of false teaching and immoral behavior, apparently because that was just the path of least resistance. Of the seven messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor, this message to the church at Thyatira is the longest message. It contains the most detailed instruction. It is, I would say, a plea for intolerance. And I know how strange that sounds in our culture today. Intolerance has become uh, essentially a bad word in our society because, in the words of one fellow, Vadi Bakum, he says, we, we act like thou shalt be nice is the 11th commandment and we're not so sure that we believe the other 10. Being intolerant of sinful teaching and sinful behavior is something that a church does not want to do because we're more offended at the idea of confronting sin than we are concerned by the fact that that sin is an offense to God. What we'll learn from this message to Thyatira is that an assembly that refuses to practice discipline within the church will soon be facing discipline from the Lord. When, When false teaching and immoral behavior rise up in the assembly, which inevitably will happen in every assembly, that church is ultimately going to experience either the reward for obedience to the Lord Jesus or judgment for being disobedient to him. As we go through this text, the first thing I want you to see is how Christ reveals himself to the church at Thyatira. Remember, this this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, all of this is intended to tell us more about him. And so even when he's addressing practical issues to these churches, it is revealing Christ. Like, here is what Jesus expects from his church. And we learn more about him by learning his expectations. And in each of these messages, it begins with Christ identifying himself in a way that is particularly poignant to the community being addressed and to the message that he's about to give. If you were around in the first century, you would have seen Thyatira as one of the the least significant cities. Certainly the least remarkable of the seven that get messages in Revelation 2 and 3. Its population was not large. It's not an economic port on the Aegean Sea. It's it actually had started as a military outpost in the middle of nowhere, just just a place to put some stuff while the army is off marching. Just like the rest of Asia Minor, Thyatira was drowning in paganism. Specifically in Thyatira, they worshipped Apollo, the supposed son of Zeus. If there was anything that Thyatira was actually known for as a city, it would have been the development of several trade guilds within the city. Think of Thyatira like, well, it's, it's a factory town that produced stuff 
for other big cities. There's a, a long list historically of what it produced, but the main things on the list were pottery, tanned leather, bronze, and dyed cloth. If you remember in the book of Acts, when Paul gets to Philippi, he met a woman named Lydia from Thyatira who was a seller of purple dyed cloth. Now, it's quite possible she became instrumental in the gospel coming to Thyatira. We just don't have those details. What we do know is that the Lord Jesus remember this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, addresses himself to this city in descriptions specific to the city and to his message. Verse 18, Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like unto a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. The Lord Jesus does not beat around the bush as he prepares to deliver this warning to the church at Thyatira. From the opening phrase, the church hears this difficult message that is coming to them. All is under the umbrella of this is from the Son of God. This is the Son of God who is speaking. This is the only place in Revelation, oddly enough, that that term Son of God appears because much of the book seems to focus on the perfect humanity of Christ, right? He's the perfect representative of of humanity. But in this case, the church at Thyatira needs to remember this message is from their creator God. He has divine authority to say the things that he's about to say and it has to be respected because of that. It may also be that the Lord intends to address the city because of its false worship. If the main display of paganism in Thyatira was this worship of Apollo, who's supposedly the son of Zeus, the believers now in Thyatira are being reminded what they had been called out from. They are no longer worshiping that frail, fraudulent, mythical wannabe. The true son of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ, and they must hear him. Not only is he the son of God, he says, His eyes are like a fiery flame. We're going to see Jesus like this again at his second coming in Revelation 19.12 when it says his eyes are a flame of fire. There is this piercing gaze of the Lord Jesus that sees everything. Within the church at Thyatira, there were some seductive and, and deceitful things happening. But we'll see the truth of the matter is exposed to the Lord Jesus whose penetrating eyes see everything clearly. Another description suitable for this specific city, Jesus says his feet are like fine brass or they are like burnished bronze is what we would say today. Thyatira, known for all of those different trade guilds and products, one of them specifically was brass. Items that featured brass made at Thyatira were simultaneously beautiful in their craftsmanship, but they were also strong by design. This description of the Lord Jesus seems to be taken directly from Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, which describes him as having eyes like lamps of fire and feet like polished brass. It's very likely that some of the Christians in the church at Thyatira um, 
practiced that, that bronze production. And so again, Jesus is revealing his superiority. What they produced can't come close to the reality, even the reality of his feet. And yet those feet we know later on in Revelation are symbolic of impending judgment. Right? His, his feet of burnished bronze, they are beautiful in character. They are strong by design because in Revelation 19, he is going to use those feet, it says, to judge the enemies of righteousness by treading out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. The revelation of Jesus in verse 18 is intended to be frightening. What he's prepared to say to this church It needs to hear as coming from the creator God who sees everything and is prepared to judge what he sees. And yet in his goodness, he does not immediately jump from this frightening description to a threat of judgment. He sees everything and part of what he sees is pleasing to him. So look secondly at the church commended because even though this It's the message of Jesus to correct this church with dire warnings. It is not that somehow Jesus has a different character here than he has in the Gospels as we know him. He loves these people. He's died for these people. He wisely commends them where he can. And this really, this isn't a bad example for us to follow. Criticism does not have to stand on its own. It can, it can and should be seasoned with kindness and, and recognition of the things that are being done right. And so in verse 19, he says, I know your works and charity and service and faith and your patience and your works and the last to be more than the first. The church at Thyatira is not simply here as a warning for all the Lord's churches. It's here as an example for the Lord's churches. We should never say, oh, we don't want to be like Thyatira because we read verse 19, we do want to be like them in verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, your your deeds. And when you look at verse 19, I think the best way to understand it is that Jesus is telling them, I know your works. I see the good things. And then to prove what he sees or to to show that he lists several of those good things. This all-seeing Jesus knows several works of the church at Thyatira that are worth commending. He says they have charity, that is agape, love. They love the Lord. They love one another. Think about this compared to the first church in Revelation 2. Ephesus. Remember the church at Ephesus was doctrinally sound, morally upright, and they lacked love? Well, the church at Thyatira was loving, but we're going to see they lacked moral and doctrinal soundness. And you have to have both. In Ephesians 4.15, the Apostle Paul admonishes us that we have to speak the truth in love. That is, we need both truth and love. Those are not things that are simply held in our hearts and our our minds, but truth and love are required to be part of our speech and part of our actions. More more about this in the second service when we get to 2 John. 
They not only have love, he says they have service. The, the Greek word there is diakonion. It's, it's the same word we get the word deacon from. There's these acts of service. So get the picture of this congregation. Don't, don't think that they were, you know, they were unloving, uncaring, lazy. They had love. They were individually willing to put that love into practice serving the Lord. He says that they have faith. The word here is faithfulness or fidelity, just like the letter of James says their, their faith and, and, and love is demonstrated by these acts of service. And Jesus also says they have patience. The word is hypomone, and it means steadfastness endurance, perseverance. This church at Thyatira, it was not made up of a bunch of weaklings. They loved, they worked, they served, they were steadfast, and they were growing in those things. Look at verse 19 again, because it's sort of difficult to to get our minds around, hard to translate. But it, it looks like Jesus is making this long list of things, saying, I know your works, charity, service, faith, patience, works, like he's repeating himself in there. But really what it's saying is, I know the way that you have worked in regard to these four areas, and then they were growing in them. I think the, the English Standard Version does a very good job here, and it translates verse 19 as... I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, this church is being commended for growing in these things. Where Ephesus had left its first love, Thyatira has even greater love and greater faith and greater service and greater patience. There's a couple of lessons to learn from this. First off, Jesus doesn't only know and care about what you're doing wrong. He knows and cares about what we're doing right. But secondly, just because you can point to some things in the church and say, well, those things are good. I I think we're growing there doesn't discount the possibility that we're facing dire consequences for Failure in other areas. As evidence for this one verse where Jesus commends the church at Thyatira, our third point is going to look at four verses where he exposes their hidden sin. Look at verses 20 through 23. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you because you suffer that woman Jezebel which calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my students, my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds and I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts and will give unto every one of you according to your works. The church at Thyatira had been growing in many ways, but it also had grown to tolerate and ignore sin which Jesus requires to be addressed. 
Now, if you wonder why I'm using that word tolerance or intolerance in this message, it's found right there in verse 20. He says, you suffer, you allow, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Jesus insists the church needs to stop tolerating, stop allowing this sin to go unaddressed. Now, let's just admit there is some symbolism here in these verses, just like the Old Testament character Balaam is brought up back in verse 14. The Old Testament character Jezebel is used symbolically here as well. It seems clear that there is an actual individual, a woman within the church at Thyatira, who is the source of several problems, but the chances that her name is Jezebel are pretty low. It'd be like somebody naming their baby boy Judas. Heard somebody say, we, we give our kids names like Rachel and John. We, we name our dogs Goliath and Nero. We name our cats Jezebel. Jezebel was the infamous queen of Israel back in 1 Kings. She was the daughter of a Gentile, Baal-worshipping king of Tyre and the wife of King Ahab of Israel. She was so intolerably evil that the scripture says that the most evil thing that wicked Ahab ever did in his entire wicked life was to marry that woman Jezebel. She ran Ahab according to her own will. Jezebel, it's clear, was the real power behind the throne of Israel at that time. I can't resist quoting R.G. Lee from one of my favorite sermons ever, a sermon called Payday Someday. He describes Jezebel as the idolatrous daughter of an idolatrous king of an idolatrous people, the personification of the most forbidding obscenity, uncleanness, and sensuality, the beautiful and malicious serpent coiled on the throne of the nation. So nobody's naming their little girl Jezebel. This is symbolic, but, but whatever the name of this woman in the church at Thyatira, whatever her name actually was, like her Old Testament counterpart, she was influential. She was deceptive. She was an immoral schemer. Here's what we can see from looking at Christ's description. First, she was a self-promoting teacher. Like Jezebel of old, this was a big personality. She was in everyone's ear, lending them her version of wisdom, guiding them for her own purposes. She was a self-appointed expert. Jesus, calls, Jesus says she calls herself a prophetess. The Holy Spirit didn't call her to prophesy, but no doubt she let everyone know that her advice and guidance came as a result of her spiritual giftedness. Jesus describes her as speaking with self-authority, not apostolic authority. Now let's be clear here. The Lord can speak through whomever he desires. The New Testament even shows that in apostolic times, there were some women like Philip the Evangelist's daughters who were given the gift of prophecy, but we don't see that it was used in the church assembly context is instructing the church as a whole. 
the Holy Spirit is not going to contradict itself, right? The Holy Spirit is not going to inspire the Apostle Paul to write, I will not allow a woman to teach or usurp authority over a man. And then the same Holy Spirit gifts a woman to do exactly that thing. That is a contradiction. And so she has self-authority. And she's claiming to speak on behalf of God. When she, what she was speaking was actually contrary to God. Listen, there should be a, a, a red flag waving in your head as soon as someone says, here is what God has shown me. Unless it comes from his word, you have no basis for assuming that it's God's message for you. If the fact that she was teaching was a problem, what she was teaching was an even greater problem. She was teaching false beliefs in order to promote false behaviors. Look at verse 20. She was teaching with the purpose of drawing away the servants of Jesus. His servants. Jesus said, look, those are my servants. But they're being called away to do essentially Satan's bidding. She's, she's leading people to live sinfully. And the way she's doing it seems clear. It's by saying, oh, well, you know, the, the teaching you're getting from the church, the teaching you're getting from the elders is all well and good. But if you want to know more, you really need the kind of deep teaching that only I can give you. I say that skipping ahead a bit based on verse 24 where Jesus commends those who have rejected that false teaching and says to, look at verse 24, the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak. In other words, there's been some so-called deep things being taught. And while surely she didn't stand up and no one stood up and said, well, you need to learn the deep things of Satan. That's what Jesus calls them, these so-called deep things. That's who they're really for. A little spiritual discernment will reveal that's actually the source. And it is leading them into, perhaps into literal sexual immorality and adultery, but certainly into spiritual immorality and adultery in which God's people are rejecting God's love and embracing some form of idolatry. Now, I'll also point out, contrary to lots of commentators on the scriptures, I think this real woman in the church at Thyatira is one of the Lord's saints. It would be easier if we could label this woman, label her as some kind of outside infiltrator that has invaded the church with the purpose of inflicting damage than if we see her as a, a saved person who was willfully doing wrong. But I take some of the descriptions in verses 21 through 23, as harsh as they sound, as evidence that she was a saved person. Excuse me a second. <coughs> Verse 21, the Lord gives her the opportunity to repent. In verse 22, she's guilty of spiritual adultery, which can only be said if she's really in a relationship with the Lord. In verses 22 and 23, the Lord promises the judgment of sickness and even death 
for her and those who follow her. Verse 22 says, I will cast her into a bed. But the Greek there is, is really more clear. It's the word kleine, it's sick bed. She's gonna become sick. And in verse 23, I will kill her children with death. That is, those who are following her, some sort of deadly pestilence is gonna come on those who continue to follow her guidance. While judgment of of sickness and pestilence and even death seems harsh, it's within the bounds of what the Lord will do with his people. Remember the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11.30 and said, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many have died, many sleep. God will not allow his people to continue in disobedience indefinitely. We aren't going to be perfect, but we are going to be corrected. And if we will not repent, which he gives the opportunity for repentance, if we will not repent, then frankly and and bluntly, sickness and death might be the best thing for us. It serves to remove us from the opportunity of continuing in sin. It serves to glorify the Lord in the eyes of others. He says in verse 23 that by bringing judgment, all the churches will know that I'm the one who searches the reins or the minds is what that means. I'm the one who searches people's hearts and minds. And I can give every one of you according to your works. Now, the lesson to learn from Thyatira isn't, as I've heard one one preacher declare it, oh, look at the problems this woman are causing in the church, right? It could just as easily happen as as a man causing the same kind of problems. Now, in this case, it was a woman, but it isn't always. That's not the point. The lesson to remember is that you have good reason to question the motives and truthfulness of any individual who's going to whisper in your ear some deep message which is actually contrary to what you've been taught in church from the scripture. Don't listen to their guidance. Don't follow them into sin. So so far we've seen how Christ reveals himself to the church at Thyatira, how he commended the church for their good works, how he exposes their hidden sin. Now see how Christ promises blessings for obedience. His warnings, his warnings are not empty threats, but they also aren't at this point indicating a, a hopeless situation. Just like there was an opportunity for this Thyatiran Jezebel to repent, there's always opportunity for us to repent. Verse 24, but I say unto you and unto the rest in Thyatira as many as not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak. I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you already have already. Hold fast till I come. And he that overcomes and keeps my words unto the end, I will give him power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. While this church at Thyatira, as a whole, 
was facing consequences for this woman's scheming and deception. The church as a whole was not guilty of listening to her. It's clear some of them had heard her and and rejected her teaching, right? There are many, he says in verse 24, who have not known this doctrine. They don't hold this doctrine. They're not believing what she's teaching. They're not participating in the things she's promoting. And yet they had allowed her to continue unabated in it. They had tolerated it. They had allowed it to go on. And so now the Lord says he's going to deal with the sin and spare those who remained obedient to him, right? I'm not going to put any more, any other burden on you, he says. This is very similar to Acts 15, 28, when the council at Jerusalem sent a a letter to the Gentile churches, a letter which the church at Thyatira probably had received a few decades before. They're familiar with this phrase in which the letter gave guidance against immorality and against idolatry, the very things that this woman had promoted, but said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And now Jesus is reiterating that same kind of of truth. I'm, I'm not going to correct this, by giving some new set of commands. You don't need a new set of commands. I'm not going to lay down extra instructions, some burdensome penance. I'm not going to give you more rules to follow. The things that you have are enough if you would just follow what you have. And what is it that they have? Look at verse 25. I'm not going to give you any more burdens than what you already have. Hold fast until I come. Hold fast to Jesus. The word there is kratio, and it's an imperative command. Hold on. Grasp on them. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on to the gospel. Hold on to doctrinal purity. Hold on to moral living. Do not tolerate wicked belief and immoral behavior. Deal with it. Hold on to Jesus and let go of everything else that, that interferes with you holding on to him. Now quickly, look at these two blessings promised for those who overcome or those who have victory as they hold on to Jesus and keep his works, right? Do his commands to the end. There's two specific blessings. The first starts about halfway through verse 26. To him will I give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my father. Listen, this requires a little bit of careful attention. It is teaching that those who remain faithful to Christ will be given power. Authority is actually the word there. Power, authority over the nations. And we could just stop there and say, well, that sounds great, but that rule, that authority is ruling under his authority. I can't even begin to explain all the details of how that's going to work, but I I do want to be clear. Christ is king and his rule is the primary rule. He's the sovereign. 
This becomes evident when we recognize that the last phrase of verse 26 and all of verse 27 is pulled directly from Psalm 2 in the Old Testament. While I'd love to go and preach that psalm again, it is one of my favorites. It's the psalm that begins, why do the the nations rage and the people plot vanity? The kings of the earth are plotting against Yahweh and his Messiah, right? It's clear who Psalm 2 is about. And Yahweh's answer against that, that rebellion against him and his Messiah is, look, I've set my king exactly where I want him. And by the end of the psalm, Yahweh the Father is speaking to his Messiah and says, I will give you the nations for your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and shatter them like pottery. Not the image of Jesus we usually like to think about, but true. The disobedient to him will be dealt with like taking a fragile vase and smashing it against the pavement. This is the connection that he intends for us to make as we read this, to make this connection with Psalm 2. Do we rage against his authority or will we be part of his righteous rule? Are we going to be given authority under his or are we going to be smashed like pottery? So this this promise of blessing for obedience that will reign over the nations, it is only as Christ reigns over us, over the nations. And this elevating, this isn't elevating us so much as it is elevating him. Just now, like all our authority is really under his authority. That's how it will be then. And so we might ask, well, why would that be a special blessing to us? Thanks for asking. That's the first blessing. The second one makes it clear. The second promise blessing in verse 28 is, and I will give him the morning star. Well, that sounds nice. I want to wake up at sunrise and take the dawning sun and stick it in my pocket like it's mine. It sounds a little warm. What we'll find when we get to the end of Revelation is that Jesus brings up these messages that he sent to the churches. He brings them back up again and gives some clarity to things. And he says in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And so when Jesus says to the faithful of the church, hold tight to me and you'll get the morning star, what do we get? When you hold fast to Jesus, you get Jesus, right? Hold on to me. I'm, I'm not going to let go of you. You enjoy him forever. A relationship that is eternal, a love that's mutual. So even as he's your king, you get to rule with him because he shares all blessings with those who he loves. Now, this is not only a message to the church at Thyatira. And so the Lord says again in verse 29, whoever has an ear, right? Whoever can hear this, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, plural there in verse 29. 
It isn't a matter of whether or not the message is important to us. It is. The question is whether or not we're willing to learn from it and obey what it says. Because this is a call from Jesus for intolerance. Tolerance, when it is tolerance of sin, is not a display of love. It is not showing love for the individual that we refuse to discipline. You know, one of the sure signs of an unloving parent is they're not willing to discipline their children. Surely churches aren't an exception from that principle. Tolerating sin is not showing love to the individual. It is not showing love for the church, which is in danger of judgment unless we repent. It's not showing love for the Lord Jesus who commands purity within the assembly. We might be tempted by the appeal of just continuing to do nothing. But what the church at Thyatira discovered was that doing nothing was doing something. It was just doing the wrong thing. They were allowing, they were tolerating. And it was tolerating what Jesus says we should refuse to tolerate. And he comes to them and to us in this text from a heart of profound concern for the church that he loves to display that love, he reminds them, look, I'm the I'm the son of God. I'm the very creator God who sees everything, who is prepared to judge what it is that I see. And if they continue to tolerate the false beliefs and and behaviors that are drawing people away from Christ, if they refuse to deal with it, he's going to step in and judge himself. For those who love, obey, and hold tightly to him, they're going to receive the blessing of relationship with him forever. And so this is a call to intolerance because a congregation that allows sin to go unaddressed is not a congregation that is holding fast to Jesus as he asks us to do. Okay.